Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. By the way, Jesus couldn't be defiled by conversation or communication or, or even touching a, a Samaritan woman. He touched lepers and, and he wasn't defiled. He touched the dead and wasn't defiled. The things he did and well, no one else in Israel would have ever done at that point. today's broadcast, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, Worship in Spirit and Truth. We will be looking at the first 45 verses of John chapter 4, and we will consider Jesus' trip to Samaria, including his interaction with the woman at the well. So, let's listen in. John 4 is a chapter of questions, revelations, and redemption, and uh, a personal interview between Jesus and, well, someone very surprised that she's spending time with him, a stark contrast to his engaging with Nicodemus in the last chapter. And perhaps we'll do some, we'll look at that one and look at this. But for now, let's just jump into the passage. Chapter four, John's gospel, verse one. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Important because he has an appointment there. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, we begin at a well where two weary, thirsty strangers meet. One has questions, the other answers. There are a series of progressive revelations leading her and then many Samaritans to put their faith in him. Her first question reveals her surprise that Jesus, a Jew, not just a Jew, clearly a rabbi, that he would even engage her, a Samaritan woman. There are three reasons she was confused. The first has to do with history. Uh, historically, Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. They despised one another, and it goes all the way back historically to the dividing of the kingdom, 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. This is after the death of David's son Solomon. The kingdom is split. Rehoboam and uh, Jeroboam each take apart. But over time, 
The Assyrians come and capture the 10 northern tribes. They disperse many of the people. They bring people from all over to, to live in the land and intermarry with the people. So the Samaritans become a mixed breed of Jews and, well, wherever those people came from. In the south, in Judah, sadly, they actually celebrated when their brethren in the north were taken captive. Why? Well, they'd gotten into some idolatry up there. And uh, the sad part is, while they were celebrating their demise, they were guilty of the same things themselves. And so the Assyrians take the northern tribes, then the Babylonians come and take the southern tribes, ultimately for the very same sins and reasons. Well, when they come back, Judah from the south, they're called Judah in the south and Israel in the north. When they come back from the Babylonian captivity, those from the north, they want to join in and help rebuild the temple. They're not going to have it down south. They're just like, you have no part with us. So there are many other instances you can dig in. Just look up Samaritans and Jews and but, but basically what happens is a small rift gets greater and greater and greater and greater. And though these people, and it's so important to know this, they're family. Ultimately, you go back far enough, they're tracing their roots to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to one of the 12 tribes that came forth from Jacob's 12 sons. So this rift historically just said, well, Jews want nothing to do with Samaritans. And as far as Samaritans were concerned, that was fine with them. Second issue was cultural. Culturally, men and women didn't mix. They never spoke in private. And so uh, his own disciples, they're gone to get some food, taking care of their priorities. And uh, when they get back, they're going to be shocked to find him in a private conversation with the woman. Now, it's not in some hidden place. It's in public at a well, but they're the only two there in the conversation. And that's just something uh, you wouldn't ordinarily see happen. Third issue, spiritually, touching anything a Samaritan touched would have defiled a Jew. This is their mindset anyway. And uh, it, it's all about ceremonial defilement. It has no actual, you know, it's not like you get their germs and get a cold or something. No, it's ceremonial. It's spiritual to them. So, so a Jew wouldn't eat with a Gentile because if you ate the same bread they were eating, even if you didn't touch their part, well, the bread that nourishes you nourishes them. You're becoming one with them. And that's why there were so many difficulties in getting the two uh, connected. So anyway, she knows these three things. By the way, Jesus couldn't be defiled by conversation or communication or, or even touching a, a Samaritan woman. He touched lepers and, and he wasn't defiled. He touched the dead and wasn't defiled. The things he did and well, no one else in Israel would have ever done at that point. So anyway, his response to her, if you knew, if you could perceive and put together what's happening right here and right now, the gift of God, who's speaking to you? He would have given you living water. The gift of God, it's his gracious, supernatural, spiritual provision. Forgiveness, redemption, and life in his son, Jesus. Jesus is God's ultimate gift to us. 
God so loved the world, we read it last week, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who's speaking to you, the word made flesh, the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the savior for and savior of sinners. He says, he would have given you living water. Now listen, living water as opposed to stagnant or sitting water in their mindset would have been flowing water. So used to be you could drink from any river in California and know that water was safe because it was always moving. Not so today. And, uh, you know, even slow moving water used to be safe. Years and years ago, we baptized down at one mile it was my favorite place for baptisms. We have some great pictures of then, and some of you were there. But anyway, bottom line, uh, we had to stop because after one baptism, some people got Giardia, and they traced it to the pool where we were baptizing. We're like, great. But I loved it because people would be all around, and they would just come. They hear us singing. They see all these people out in the water. Sometimes we saw more people come to the Lord at the baptism than had come to the Lord leading to the baptism. So anyway, the, the bottom line, there was good water and there was stagnant water and there was really dangerous water. So flowing water, life-giving water, you know, you have to have the physical stuff to survive. And, and so, of course, he's talking about more than that, but that clean, clear, cleansing, refreshing water flowing to you and through you, he'll say in John 7. And he'll bring it back up a little further down. Well, the woman says to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? She's curious, and like Nicodemus, she takes Jesus a little too literally. How can a man be born again, Nick said, and go back into his mother's womb? No, that's not going to work for either of you. And so she's just saying, you have no cup. The well's deep. How do you expect to get this water? And then I like where she goes with this. And I'm thinking, she was thinking, like, I got to get me some of that water. But are you greater, she says, than our father Jacob? It's a more probing question because it's about his person and not just his provision or his resources. She's saying, now, well, listen, this is Jacob's well. And you're saying you can give me something better than this. So are you greater than Jacob? Jesus answered her and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Her response to him acknowledges her thirst physically and spiritually, as well as her position socially. It's subtle, but it's important to note. She was there in the middle of the day. It was a half hour walk at least. It's deserty. So to, to be at a well in the middle of the day, you're doing that intentionally so you're not running into others. She's surprised to see anyone there. 
And now she's in a conversation with the Jewish rabbi, and more than a Jewish rabbi, but that's who she's beginning to perceive him to be. She says she wants it that she might not thirst. And then she says, nor come here to draw. So her response acknowledges that physical thirst. And then, of course, Jesus wants to draw her out as, you know, she, she's saying, I don't want to have to come back here. I don't want to have to go through this. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. In essence, he's saying, let's talk about and deal with your last desire. He takes them out of order, you know, nor come here to thirst. But she says, nor come here to draw. And so he's saying, let's talk about that. Why don't you get your husband? Because Really, if a man was going to engage in a conversation with the woman, that could only happen with her husband present or a brother or someone, but never like it was. Well, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly it's easy to misunderstand what's actually happened to her because we live in such a different culture. In those days, men divorced women, but women did not divorce men. Not in this culture anyway. And, and you need to know, though, there were problems in the North, there were problems in the South. These guys all have the common root of Abraham. They have Moses' law. They, they understand these things. So anyway, um, what, he, what he's dealing with is a woman who was married five times and divorced five times. But in every one of those cases, the man would have initiated both. He would have married her and then set her aside, put her aside. And then another marries her and puts her away. And then a third marries her and puts her away. And the fourth and the fifth. Now she's living with a guy in an adulterous relationship, and this guy's not even willing to marry her. So while I'm not really into the whole victim mentality thing, you know, so many people, oh, I'm a victim, everything happened to me, and I had no control over it. In her case, she truly is a victim of the hardness of men's hearts against her. Because, well, when, when they ask Jesus about divorce later, he'll say, well, you know, this, Moses said, you know, we could give a writing of divorce. He made it clear for adultery and adultery only, but not just that. When they said, well, then why did, why did he even say, go ahead and write it? He said, because of the hardness of your hearts, lest a woman have to live with someone who doesn't love her and doesn't care for her and doesn't provide for her. He allowed divorce, but that was never the plan. So here's a woman who has severely been misused and taken advantage of. And, uh, and so he wants to deal with that issue because, well, that's a hard issue, a core issue. And just as he did with Nicodemus, he was face to face, then eye to eye, then heart to heart. He's doing the same thing with her. So um, when all this goes down and she says, well, can we talk about something else? You know, I used to think she just tr was trying to change the subject. I don't think that now. I think she's saying, listen, I have greater, greater issues than, than that issue. And, and so she said, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. 
And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She goes, go back with me to, to verse 19. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She's not just, you know, flattering him. She realizes someone who knows her whole history, who just met her, isn't an ordinary guy or an ordinary rabbi. And then she gets into her heart's greatest desire and greatest passion. And I love where she goes because it's not about oh, if I could only find a man who'd love me, or if I could only be a part of the community of women who shun me. No, her greatest desire is to worship God acceptably. And that's what she's saying. You guys say it's, it's down there in Mount Zion and, and Jerusalem, and, and up here we have Mount Gerizim, and that's where they are. And our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say it's about that mountain where we ought to worship. And so Jesus doesn't just answer the question, although he answers the question, he takes her deeper and further in her understanding of what's really going on. Now, the word worship appears in these next few verses seven times. And the word worshipers just once, but clearly the focus here is worship. So she, he says, verse 21, woman, we read it, but now in its context, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. What does that mean to us? It's not about where we worship. It's about who we worship and how we worship. And he's going to make that very clear. In verse 22, he said, you worship what you do not know. We worship, well, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Truth is, everybody worships something or someone. Why? Because we were created not just with the capacity, but a need to worship. That's why worldwide people worship something. In Psalm 115, and then again in Psalm 135, the psalmist describes the idols of the heathen. He says they have eyes, but they can't see, mouths, but they can't speak, ears, but they can't hear, hands, but they can't handle, feet, but they can't walk. And he concludes by saying those who make them are like them. And what's that saying? Saying if someone's worshiping a lifeless idol, then their God is lifeless and, and well, they're lifeless. They're blinded spiritually. They can't hear the truth. They, they can't handle what's happening. They can't walk in the spirit. None of what God intends for them is their reality. Are they sincere in their worship? I believe many are. I was in India and I saw so many people that were so devout, but they were worshiping millions of unknown gods, none of them actual God. And so we worship, he's saying, the true and living God. We know who we're worshiping. But, but the hour is coming when it, everyone will get it. It's not here or there. It's who and it's how. So 
he, listen, he, he, as we read, we know what we worship salvation is of the Jews. They worship the one true and living God. And we're all called to worship God. We worship the Father through the Son and in the power of the Spirit. By the way, those three all worthy of, but Jesus is always pointing us to the Father. He came to redeem us and reconcile us to the Father. The Father says, no one comes to the Son yet by me or but by me. We know the work of the Spirit to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So no one comes to the Father except through the Son. No one comes to the Son except through the Father. No one comes to either if the Holy Spirit isn't at work. So they're working together with one goal, to bring us to salvation, everlasting life. Well, Salvation is of the Jews. The one true and living God, he promises salvation, redemption, forgiveness through a savior. And Jesus goes on and we'll see it in, in verse, he goes on to say it in verse 26. First though, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, he's not using the word true as to say that those who worship idols aren't truly worshiping. No, they are. But he's saying worshipers who are worshiping in spirit and truth, according to the truth, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Well, he clarifies it. I could have just read it. It would have been easier. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. The Father worthy of and desiring our worship. And it's a bit troubling that he even has to pursue his own creation and say, hey, I'm the one providing. I'm the one I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. You have life physically because I gave it to you. You can have life spiritually because I, I, I want to give it to you. But he's seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Empowered by his spirit in accordance with his word, those who have neither cannot worship him acceptably. I remember years ago, my pastor, who is worshiping perfectly today because he is in the presence of God Almighty, and he was a pretty good worshiper even down here. But anyway, he used to, to talk about the fact that an overemphasis on one to the neglect of the other will always hinder our worship. And, and so not just our worship, if we're too into the word as if that were possible, but, but, or two into the spirit as if that were possible. No, I think you can't be two into either unless one causes you to neglect the other. But if, if we're into the word and we're into the spirit, well, then our worship, our witness, our fellowship are all going to reflect that. But here's how Chuck used to say it. If we focus on the word without the spirit, we'll dry up. If we focus on the spirit without the word, we'll blow up. But when the word of God and the spirit of God are at work in the heart of a child of God, we grow up. And that's the whole point and purpose, that we would mature in him. And as we do, we would become more like him. Well, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. You have to appreciate this. The Jews thought the Samaritans were so lost. The Samaritans thought they have it all. They've got the temple and the priesthood and the feast and the festivals. They have everything. They're still lost. And guess who was right? Both of them. They were lost. But that's why Jesus had come. 
And that's why John the Baptist was calling people to repentance. The woman said, I know Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Over the years, I have found that many unbelievers have said that their rejection of Christ has to do with how they've been treated by Christians. I'm sure that that sometimes may be true, but many times it's just an excuse, but that doesn't really matter. Many times when a person is confronted by their sin, they throw up their defenses and stop listening no matter how they are treated. I think of how Jesus showed the woman at the well that he was the one that would remove the obstacles that prevented her from coming to God. He didn't tell her she needed to change into a different person to come to the Lord. He showed her that it was all about him. When talking to unbelievers, we need to remember that. It's not the church that's going to help them be right with God. It's not their behavior that's going to make them right before God. It is Jesus Christ that's going to do this work, and sometimes we just need to get out of the way and let him be the one that does this. Our job is simply to introduce them to the Messiah. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.